This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to the first episode of Faculty Focus. This podcast will feature interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Dr. Bill Barge, Associate Professor in Trine's Department of Computer Science and Information Technology, and we're going to be talking specifically about cybersecurity. Bill, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Tell me a little bit about your background in encryption and cybersecurity. Um, How did you first get interested in this area, and how did you gain expertise in it? My first exposure to cybersecurity was in graduate school. Through the courses I took in graduate school, I designed and taught a class here uh, 11 years ago. It was a wireless internet security class for the honors program. And from that class grew, from the old informatics program, a course in internet security. What kind of was it about that graduate school experience that really interested you in the area? I was taking a network management class in graduate school, learning how wireless networking worked and uncovering all of the the holes, all of the ways that people could get into it. And I just thought it was interesting enough that students might be interested in what's going on in that too. Tell me a little bit, maybe in some layman's terms, uh, particularly for people like me who maybe don't know a lot about this. How do these systems work to protect online transactions and other information exchanges that we do? Most of our transactions that happen over the internet are encrypted, meaning that the data is scrambled so that nobody else can read what's going on. A normal message sent through the internet would be like sending a postcard through the U.S. mail. Anybody can read the message. When we encrypt it, it's almost like we put it inside an envelope so that we can still see the address, we can see who it's from and who it's to, but we can't see the contents of the message. With asymmetric encryption that's used on the internet, we don't need a previous relationship. The earlier encryption methods, we needed a way to pass the encryption key, so we needed a previous relationship to pass that key, and if we had that one-to-one interaction, we could just pass the message that way too. With asymmetric encryption, We don't need that previous relationship. We go on a website. Part of the key is on the website, enough for us to encrypt the message. And then the receiver, uh, the store we're buying from, can decrypt the message and get our credit card number and so on out of all of our confidential information out of the the message that we send to them. But in between, in the transit uh, from the sender to the receiver, all of the personal data, that confidential information is kept confidential because it's hidden from anybody that wants to look at. Now, you you talk about, again, sending some things that would be like sending a postcard that anybody could read it. What are some examples of that? I mean, when we're emailing, is that something that's out there for anybody, or is there encryption involved with that? Google uh, with Gmail is getting much better at that. In fact, you can't, can't set up a Gmail account without it being encrypted. But by default, a lot of email services, including Microsoft Outlook, which we use here at Trine, by default, the messages we send, the emails we send are not encrypted. Many of the web pages we go to, we might put in our user ID, maybe our password, maybe our credit card number into a a website that's not encrypted. Now, how do we know it's encrypted? We see 
a little lock maybe at the top maybe we see at the beginning of the web address https where the s is for secure uh, maybe it turns the the address bar green so we want to look out for those things because we don't want to put in our user id and our password for say our banking site and have it exposed to where anybody can see it now when we're talking about again unsecured or unencrypted websites are those is that necessarily mean somebody who's a scammer or is it just somebody who maybe doesn't have their uh, technology up to date for most of the traffic that happens it's just the way it was that happens when what we use as the internet today was designed by the department of defense back in the late 60s and early 70s it was designed for honest people I mean, you know it was a, a private network that they were sending this on it wasn't until the 1990s that it became available for everybody uh, to use and they took a long time to to make it secure you mentioned asymmetric encryption and i'm not sure that everybody listening would necessarily pick up on what that phrase means can you explain um, what asymmetric encryption is and i'm presuming just because i know a little bit of latin to make me dangerous that there's also a symmetric encryption yes symmetric encryption both parties use the same key so when i encrypt the message i use a key when you decrypt the message you use the same key in math we'd be multiplying by a key and then you as the receiver would multiply by the inverse of that key with asymmetric encryption it's a little more complicated it's a little more like staying at a hotel where I can get in my room, but the maid can get into all of the rooms. So the sender can encrypt their message with a key that's available on the website, but the receiver can decrypt all of the messages they receive. And I'm guessing, again, when you're talking about the sender can encrypt, um, you know, I, I don't recall, say, the last time I purchased something on Amazon, making a conscious effort to encrypt what I was sending them. This is an automated process through these websites? It's an automated process for websites that are set up to encrypt. And those are the websites that we see the little lock or maybe the green address bar or the HTTPS as the protocol as part of the, the website name. And when we talk about encryption, is this, um, I mean, you, you think back to like the code talkers of World War II, is this kind of a more advanced version of that thing where they were doing, I think it was called a cipher or whatever to, you know, developing a code? It's the same. Uh, the cipher is the process of encrypting. We have a key that is used. It's the variable that we use. Uh, so it's just a, one big mathematical algorithm, one big mathematical equation where we have a variable that's the key. We multiply the message by that key value and we get a new value. And then you at the other end would multiply by or divide mm -hmm. by the key, same as multiplying by the inverse of the key, and you would get the original message back. Now, how hard is it for you know, somebody who shouldn't have the key to figure out this mathematical equation if they're able to intercept some of these messages? It really depends on the encryption method. With RSA encryption, RSA stands for the three men that developed it, Rivis, Shamir, and Alderman. With RSA encryption, it's really hard to decrypt because they are using exponential math to do it, and then we need to use basically logarithmic math to, to solve it. 
With simple encryption methods, though, it's very easy. In fact, in class, I've shown the students how to decrypt messages using some of the older. And older, we're only talking maybe 10 years old encryption methods. Uh, for example, WEP, which was wired equivalency privacy, which you would use on your home network, and you shouldn't see that anymore on the modern routers that you would buy. With WEP encryption, we could decrypt it in class in less than 10 minutes. I know from some recent research that uh, you did that we wrote about on the Trine website that RSA is a pretty common uh, algorithm or encryption method that's used on a lot of different websites. Yeah. RSA is pretty much the universal encryption method that we use today on the internet. It's, it's the best that we have right now. Now, I mean, is there a possibility that somebody could go in and, and break that? Quantum computing is the, will be the end of encryption as we know it. In fact, in the news, Google has been playing with quantum computing. Quantum computing, the computers are so much faster than the computers we have today. So just through a brute force attack, trying every possible value, somebody could break the code. Right now, it, it, it would just take way too long to try all the values. With quantum computing, computers so much faster than what we have today, they'd be able to do in maybe days what today would take tens of thousands of years to do. So when you, we're talking about you know a hacker or somebody getting in, it's not really a person who's sitting here at their keyboard and trying all these things, kind of like... Um, I'm trying to think of the movie from the 1980s where Matthew, I think it was Matthew Broderick, you know, hacked into NORAD or whatever. We're talking about they're using a computer program that then carries us out. Yeah, War Games was that movie. War Games, there we go. There are people that hack into the systems like that. As people joke, you know, there's somebody living in their parents' basement with their computer. But most of the time, the way somebody gets into our confidential information is we invite them in. We go out to a website, we download that program that we just need, and when that program's loading, it loads uh, some malicious software called malware. And that malware could be a virus, a worm, a Trojan horse, maybe a rootkit. Some of those are designed to destroy the data on our systems, but other malware is designed to let somebody else in. And something that might be installed to be a keylogger so somebody could look at every keystroke we make on the system. And as we're typing in our user ID and password, they would be able to see our user ID and password. Some of those are sent back automatically. Some of them, a person would have to come back onto our system. As I said earlier, the, the way the internet works was really designed for honest people. <laughs> a, a lot of information that we use is kept on our computer. All the passwords that we save are just kept in a file on our computer. And it, it's not that hard for somebody to get into our computer and look at those files, especially if it's a website that's maybe not legitimate because we've already given them access to the area that has all those cookie files. Online transactions are probably the most obvious method where personal information is vulnerable online, but um, there have also been news reports of significant data breaches at places like healthcare companies, uh, or even universities. Um, what kind of personal information is vulnerable, even, say, for people who don't shop online, or maybe even for people who aren't online at all? With the way systems work, where systems talk to each other, there's a lot of information that's passed. And even if we don't have an online account, there's still that 
confidential information about us, that personal information about us, that's kept on some server online someplace. For example, our bank, my bank knows my social security number. My bank knows my bank account number. Even if I don't have an account to log into the bank through a website or through an app, my information is still out there on that same database that anybody else's information is. So if somebody can get into that database, maybe they can get some of that information. Birthdays, phone numbers. If I have your phone number and your name and maybe something else about you, I might be able to call you up and pretend that I'm the bank and get you to give me access. Or if I have your email address, I might be able to send you an email, a phishing email, where I'm looking for information about you. And if I can get you to click on a link in an email and put in your bank user ID and password, now I have access to that also. And I can see the danger of that, particularly with a financial institution, but why would a hacker be interested in my grades at college or um, you know, the results of my last colonoscopy? Uh, why are they trying to get into Lutheran or to maybe even into Trine's computers? On that, I would think it would be that same confidential information, the social security number, the birth date, the name, your full name. You know, I don't know why they'd want to see somebody's grades unless they're going to, unless that person's running for political office or something. But all the other information that we have out there might just be enough for them to be able to convince you that there's somebody that they're not. And it might be able to convince you to share some personal information that maybe you shouldn't share. Okay, so it's maybe not even that they want my information to attack me, but they want to pretend they're me to get information from somebody else. They could use it to pretend that they are you to get information from somebody else, or they could use that information that they were able to get from the hospital to try to get into the bank because they would have some personal information about you and maybe they can convince somebody at the, the bank that they're you. You mentioned some different things like malware, Trojan horses, um, I know a, another growing trend that I've read about um, is what they call ransomware, I believe, where somebody can get into a city or other governmental entities' uh, computer and they kind of lock it down until they receive uh, some sort of ransom payment. Um, how do these people gain access to these kind of systems and what do municipalities or government agencies need to do to keep these systems safe? The easiest way to gain access to those systems is for somebody, one of the employees, to go out to a website, download a file, maybe go to a website, set up an account, and use the same user ID and password that they use to get into the, the business account, their, their work account. If somebody goes out to a website and downloads a program onto the work computer, that program might install some malware that might give the ransomware people that foot in the door to be able to, to encrypt all of the data that's on the system, and then they can come back and they can charge you to decrypt it. That's the way ransomware works. They'll encrypt all of your data and then give you an amount, $50,000, and if you pay that amount, they'll give you the key to decrypt the data so you can get it back. And ironically, most of the ransomware people are pretty honest about that, from what I understand. If you pay them the money, they will give you. Because they're not interested in your information. They just want the money. So 
what kind of going back to that, what does a city do to prevent this from happening? I mean, it sounds like part of it is just telling your employees not to visit certain sites while they're on their work computers. You could tell them not to visit certain sites. The employer could lock down the computers so that the employees cannot load any, cannot install any programs on it because it's that process of installing that makes it easy. So if I can't go out and download a program and install it on my work computer, I've eliminated one way that somebody could install ransomware onto the system. You have to look at it as the employer is paying you to work 40 hours a week they're supplying you with the tools you need to work, and you really shouldn't be doing personal things on the computer. The, the employer doesn't gain anything out of you watching YouTube videos or downloading screensavers uh, when they're paying you to do another job. But it also sounds like, from what you said, too, even just somebody not being careful with you know using a, a username and password that they use on their work machine for another, you know, on their home computer could open that up as well. Yes. You really should use different passwords on every system that you have an account because we don't know who all of these people are. And it would be very easy for me to set up a website that I required you to put in a user ID and a password. Uh, maybe so I save your information. You know, it's a it's an auto parts website. And that way I bring up what car you have and you know I tell you I'm going to filter it based on some information that you had put in. But if I'm not quite legitimate on that, maybe you're using the same user ID and password that used on your banking site. And I can set up a list of those and have a computer just try one after another. Computers do things very quickly. So it, it doesn't take that much for me to take a list of 10,000 user IDs and passwords and go to bankofamerica.com and see if any of them will let me in. As we prepare for municipal elections next month and even more as we look next year toward the uh, presidential elections, there's a lot of concern about the vulnerability of those systems to interference. Personally, I'm old enough to remember the 2000 election where there was the controversy about the paper ballots and um, hanging chads became a catchphrase. And that really, I think, led to the push for electronic voting. Um, how have these systems developed since then and what kind of vulnerabilities do they have? Well, going back to the 2000 election, the hanging chads, they were using punched cards that had perforations. So you put the punch card into a booklet and took a stylus and poked holes. If you want to vote for somebody, there, there was a hole and you poked the stylus through the hole, it punched through the perforation and made a hole in the card. And then they could use a machine, just like in the 1950s and 60s for reading computer programs, they would put the punch cards into machines, the machine could read the cards very quickly, and you had the results of the election. The problem was when you went back for a recount and you had multiple people handling those cards because the chads were the little piece of paper that was supposed to be punched out. Well, the more people you had handling the cards and maybe twisting the card a little bit, it caused some of the chads to come loose. Or maybe, maybe they didn't fall out completely, but they were hanging. They were still attached by one side or one corner. Because of that, they had the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which outlawed using punch cards in the election. And the government went in the direction of having electronic ballots where 
you would go to a computer screen and you'd use a touch screen, put in your vote, and the votes then would be tallied by the that computer in the polling place. And then at the end of the day, or maybe multiple times during the day, the votes are collected from all those and then sent on to maybe the state house for tallying um, from around the state. One of the problems with the systems that we have now that are just touchscreens is there's no way for me to verify that the vote that I, as the voter, for me to verify that the vote that I put in is actually the vote that's cast. And for recount purposes, there's no direct connection between the vote that I put in and the vote that's recorded. Just this year, in May of this year, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 2722, the SAFE Act. The SAFE Act says that we should use paper ballots similar to the old Scantron forms, and we'd fill in the bubbles, and then the ballots would be read by a machine, so we still have that ease to collect the, the votes. For recounts, we can just run those ballots back through the machine, and if there is some discrepancy, some question, we have a paper ballot that the voter had looked at, the voter had approved before they fed it into the machine that could be used for a manual recount. I remember scantrons from doing standardized tests when I was in school. I know there's still some potential issues with that. You know, you get people who don't fill the circle in all the way or maybe fill it in too much. And um, are there are there ways kind of around that or is that just kind of a, something that we'd have to deal with with that system? Well, in fact, the bill takes into account for that. It, it talks about what happens when the user, the voter, has soiled the ballot, when, when they have gone through and, and mismarked something, because you're using a pen to fill in the, the circles. And there's a way that they can mark a ballot as void, give the voter a new ballot. Different from the Scantron machines that we use, it's not just one, A, B, C, or D. It would have the, the person that's up for election, it would have their name, and you'd fill in the circle next to their name. So easier to read. And when they had, they used to have these in Steuben County. And when they had them in Steuben County, before me as the voter was actually the one that fed it into the machine. So it didn't leave my hands from the time I received it when I entered the polling place until the time I cast my vote. I know that there's some states in the United States that are working to implement online voting. And I also know you're currently working on a research article um, outlining some reasons that this is not really a good idea. Um, can you talk about the pitfalls of online voting systems? Yes. Online voting is a lot like absentee voting. So when we vote absentee, we contact the election board and tell them that we will not be in town, we will not be available to vote in person, we want to vote ahead of time. So they will send me a ballot that I can fill out, and I return it in an envelope, and then they process it on election day, if needed, uh, they'll process them and my vote will count. Some of the problems with absentee ballots is we don't know who's actually filling them out. I could sell my vote to somebody else. I could give them my ballot and have somebody else fill it out. I don't know for sure that my ballot actually arrived. I put it in the U.S. mail. It should get there, but I have no way to know that it actually did. And third, there's some questions about privacy of my vote because I put it in an envelope and I put a return address and there's a number, a tracking number on the ballot. 
they're supposed to remove that outer envelope and the inner envelope that would contain my absentee ballot is supposed to be anonymous. Online voting has those same three problems. I don't know who's actually voting because I would go, people would vote from home with most of these online voting scenarios. So I don't know who is actually voting and whether one person is voting for everybody in the house or whether I've sold my, my account number, my, my access code. You know, I, I might've sold that to somebody else and they vote in my place. I assume that my vote is getting there. Probably more likely that my online vote will get to the, the recipient than my absentee ballot because every day we do transactions on the internet and almost all of those transactions actually arrive where they're supposed to. And the third is there's some questions about anonymity because my vote would have attached to it personal information about my computer that could be used to identify me if somebody needed to. Online voting has one additional pitfall, and that is that somebody could duplicate votes or eliminate votes because I'm using my home computer. As we know, home computers can be hacked. Home computers can get viruses, malware on them. It wouldn't be that hard in the grand scheme of things for somebody or some group to have some malware that they get onto people's home computers and the malware doesn't identify itself until election day. And one of the things it could do would be it might be able to scramble my vote so that now my vote is unusable. Maybe it doesn't send my vote, but I think that it's sent. Or even worse, it might duplicate my vote and send instead of one copy, maybe three copies or five or a thousand or 10,000. And if I could do enough votes going to the receiver, I could do something called a denial of service attack. We see those every once in a while on Amazon or eBay where so, there's so many requests that they can't handle them all and the system has to shut down. And if I could overflow the voting system, I've just eliminated however many people are voting online, maybe eliminate their votes from even being counted. Now you were talking about the duplicate votes. I was thinking I used to live in the Chicago area and there were all sorts of jokes that would go around about duplicate voting in mm -hmm. Chicago. I'm guessing that's another possibility as well. It's another possibility probably less likely to get two votes from the same person on an online system, but it's that thousands of votes or tens of thousands of votes that might really cause the problems. And why it's less likely to get two votes is because the way the system should be designed, each person should have their own access code and that access code should only be allowed once. So at the receiving end, they should be able to, to match up the access code and say, yes, we've received this access code already. What are some practical things that we as average people can do to help keep our private information safe? Well, three things that we can do are we can keep our computer software up to date, especially if we're using Windows. Windows, they have Update Tuesday. So about once a month, there's a, an update. Uh, twice a year, there's a big update. Um, I have an iPhone. With iPhones, there's updates that happen. I know iOS 13 only came out about a month ago, and there have already been, I think, four updates to it. And some of those are security updates. Some are to fix other problems. 
But if I run unpatched software, whether it be on my home computer or on my phone, my tablet, that just is a hole that somebody could use because the hole's already been identified. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the patch. So if I were trying to get into your system, I would try holes that have already been identified. It would save me time because right, they've, they've already identified them, already know how to get in using that. Another thing you can do, especially on your home computer if you're using Windows, is run antivirus software and run a firewall with Windows, especially Windows 10. The antivirus software, Windows Defender, is pretty good. I mean, it's better than nothing, and it's actually better than some that you pay for. There's others out there that you could pay for that are much better. But something, you know, a, a cheap lock on your door at home is better than no lock, I guess. And a firewall, what a firewall does is it would keep unwanted traffic from getting onto your computer or out of your computer. So I might have iTunes on my home computer. And iTunes, every once in a while, wants to send a message back to Apple and say, is there an update? Right, And then it pops up and says, there's an update. Do you want to install this iTunes update? Well, with the firewall, I could block that from happening. And I could also stop from outside uh, websites, maybe that I have relationships with, from sending messages to an application that I have on the computer or to their website. It's a little harder with the website because I've invited them in when I'm on the web. And the third thing, right, just be careful. Be careful when you go out on the internet. Right, it, It's kind of the Wild West in some ways. They haven't talked about it much lately, but a couple years ago there was a big talk about net neutrality and whether net neutrality was good, net neutrality was bad. But the whole concept there was there were some people that wanted to control what was on the internet and others that didn't. And right now, almost anything goes on the internet. So when you go out to a website, just be smart. Make sure that it's the website you actually want to be at. Use a different password, maybe even a different user ID if you get to choose your user ID. Sometimes it's your email address, but sometimes they'll let you choose something shorter. You know, don't give somebody a helping hand to, to your personal information. And don't just go and download. I know I'm just as guilty as other people. I used to download a lot of questionable software. Oh, I need software that will convert you know, this to a PDF, and I download it from a site. Now, is that site safe? Maybe, maybe not. Right? So is the software safe? I don't know. Right? And I'm much smarter about doing that, and I hopefully everybody else has been educated about that too. That right? There's a lot of nasty things out there that could really open us up open our systems up to attack. And if we're just smart about it, though, we can avoid some of those. That last point uh, just made me think of something. I mean, because I've been in the same situation, you know, I need to convert something to a PDF or sometimes I want to maybe just uh, download a video or convert something to an MP3. And there's also a lot of websites out there that advertise doing that. You know, you put this URL in and we'll spit out or you upload your um, your word file or some other file and we'll spit it out as a pdf are those any safer than downloading those kind of apps or is it kind of like everything else with the looking for the um, encryption they're they're safer because you aren't downloading and installing software to your own computer there's still some risks you can hide some malware in a PDF. You can hide malware in Word documents. So some of the documents we, we download, somebody might be able to hide something that's not good in there. 
but there's less of a chance of that happening if I upload my file to the website and then they allow me to download the file back from them. Because I can scan that file when I download it before I open it. I can scan it and make sure that antivirus software doesn't recognize anything in there. I guess it depends what we're sending up to the site because if I, I'm sending a document that has personal information up there, uh, maybe a Word document, and they're making it into a PDF, well, now they have all my confidential information that's in that document. So just be careful what you send up to have converted also. I know you were talking about with a firewall. Is I mean, is it an all-or-nothing case with that where I set it up and you know nothing is going to get out or come in, or is it something where... I have the ability maybe to set up, you know, allow these sites access, say, if I want to, you know, have that kind of connection with certain websites. The Windows firewall, the, the free one that comes with Windows 10, is, it's not an all or nothing, but it does a lot behind the scenes. So what happens when you first get your computer is it will ask you. Chrome wants to access the internet and you allow or deny. And if you say allow, it writes a rule in the firewall that says it's okay to use Chrome. And if you say deny, it puts a rule in the firewall that says Chrome cannot access the internet. And that can get you into some trouble. Uh, I know somebody that it came up and said Internet Explorer wants to access the internet, and they clicked deny. And then I got a phone call saying, I can't get on the internet. And when I went over to their house, they were telling me about an email that they had just read, which tells me they could get on the internet. And what they had then, they had blocked Internet Explorer from getting on the internet. Uh, so it was a good thing that they also had Firefox. So I was able to get on. What I actually had to do was I had to read the instructions. I had to get on the internet so I could read instructions to figure out how to change their firewall. Firewalls that we pay for, or maybe some of the free firewalls even, are more complex to use, but they give the user a lot more control over what's opened up and what's what's closed. Uh, so you could open it up for certain games maybe that you want your kids to play. Maybe you could even set up some times that you know your kid can go online and play an online game from 3.30 to 6 o'clock, but after 6 o'clock the rest of the night they can't access that site. So just like a lot of things, if, if you pay money, maybe you get some more bells and whistles. But as I said before, the free firewall that comes with Windows is pretty good, and it's a lot better than not having a firewall. All right. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Bill Barge for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back at TrineRadio.com for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.